Implications for marriage. That's what we're going to talk about this morning in this Matters of the Heart series. If everything that we've covered so far is true, then what are just a few implications for marriage? We could, of course, take days to talk about all of them, but we'll hit a few this morning. And as we jump in, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Well, Father, we thank you for your grace, for your mercy. We thank you for not dealing with us according to what our sins deserve, but according to what Christ has purchased for us, according to your steadfast love that is so generous through him. Father, we thank you for the compassion with which you have dealt with us, for the kindness that you have shown to us, for the meekness and humility of our Savior who took on human flesh, who took the form of a bond slave, who went to the cross and died there in our place so that our sins can be forgiven, so that we can be reconciled to you, so that you can become our God and we can become your people, your children, adopted and secure forever. We pray that everything about the circumstances of our lives would matter infinitely less than those realities that you would fix our eyes on Jesus, that you would help us to remember the many gifts of our salvation and in remembering and in knowing and in believing and in being moved by those very truths that we would love one another, that we would relate to one another, especially in our marriages in a very different kind of way, that our speech in our homes, that the way we relate to one another in our homes would, would truly give away the, the, the fact that we are yours that we are redeemed, that we are being prepared for a whole other world. And so we pray that you would open our hearts now to receive from your word, that you would help us to be believing and not unbelieving, that you would make us humble, not proud, that you'd show us our need for you, for nothing in what we're about to talk about is, is possible without your spirit working in us and through us. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So yeah, if the Lord really did create us inner person and outer person, inseparably interdependent, and is redeeming the inner person first, and someday he will redeem the body, he will resurrect the body from the grave, he will glorify the body, he will reunite the body to the soul, but yet in the meantime, the outer form is decaying, but the inner form is being renewed day by day. If it's really true that he's actually filled us with his spirit, that we're to no longer regard one another according to the flesh, but as in Christ, as new creations in Christ, then what are the implications for marriage? Last week we talked about some of the implications in the life of the church. We talked about some of the implications for being a single person, even in the life of the church and in this world. And this week we're gonna talk about how this all matters in our marriages, in our homes. If God wants our hearts first and foremost then how should this truth apply to marriage? These are just some of the questions we're going to try to jump into today. And there's really many passages we could go to, many passages we can jump into, but really I actually want us to camp out on one. So I know we've jumped around a lot in past weeks. This week I want us to mostly spend our time in one passage, and that's Colossians 3. If you want to turn there to Colossians 3, verses 12 through 7. Last week we talked about Colossians 3, 1 through 11. And then this week, I want us to kind of build from that and look at verses 12 through 17 and apply those specifically to marriage, to life as husbands and wives or life preparing for marriage, life helping other people prepare for marriage. Colossians 3, verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, Humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, 
teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So Paul's going to begin this little section of scripture, this little section of his epistle to the Colossians, telling us to look back on everything he said before and to reflect on everything he said to this point. He tells us to look back on the realities of our salvation, upon what Christ has accomplished for us. Colossians 1, 21 and 22 says, And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. That's that's a true reality. This is what Christ has accomplished for you. If you are in Christ, then you've been moved from alienated to reconciled. And if reconciled, you're now holy and blameless before him. This is what happened at the moment of your redemption. It isn't that you kind of figured it all out and you kind of found your way to God, but no, he turned the lights on inside of you. He opened your eyes to see. He gave you a new heart, put his spirit in you so that you would actually believe. And the fact that you repented from sin and trusted in Christ was the evidence of that work that God has done in you. Colossians 3.3, you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. I tell you, if we really believe that, that does actually change the way we relate to other people. It certainly changes the way you relate in marriage. It's very different when you relate to, a dead, as a dead person, your desires, your passions, your flesh, your wishes, everything you're, you're clamoring for and wanting in the flesh, put to death, alive to God hidden with Christ in God. The old self has been put to death and therefore is being put off and a new self is being put on. What this means is our position before God has completely changed. Our nature has changed. We're new creations. Our identity has changed. We are actually in Christ, children of God. We're new creations in Christ. Our relationship to him has drastically changed. It's one of peace and reconciliation. He is our father. And now he's going to say three things about this in verse 12. We are chosen ones, holy and beloved. And I think that should take our breath away. I think you can spend the rest of your days just thinking about that truth and never get tired of it. And everything he's about to say next is going to be built on that very foundation of point A here, remembering who you are. That's what he's going to say then. So then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. So we're just going to walk through those three things and then build from it. Chosen of God. That's what he calls you. You didn't choose him, he chose you. All of us were born hostile to God, running headlong from God as fast as we could, as angry as we could. None of us, in other words, wanted to be chosen by him. So if you can imagine, think back to high school. Some of you like to think back further than others. You're in high school, and there's this sort of raffle that whatever sort of boy in your high school class and girl, if whoever gets drawn out their name from that raffle, they get to pick whoever they want from the entire class to have to go to homecoming with them the whole week. So the day comes, the raffle And the ugliest, most attractive, most despicable boy in the entire year class gets chosen. And now he has the power to pick any girl he wants in the entire school to have to go with him to homecoming and be his date for that entire week. And then sure enough, then a girl draws a name, or, or then they draw the name of the girls, and the ugliest, most unattractive, most despicable, despised girl in the entire school gets chosen. And she gets to pick whatever boy she wants in the whole school. At that point, do you want to be chosen? At that point, when you look at, okay, you're a guy, and, okay, this is the girl that gets to choose anybody they want, and now you're, you're going to be joined to them in that homecoming week. Do you really, at that moment, want to be chosen? And if they do choose you, are you going to feel honored? Like, oh, this is so great. 
Well, that's how we saw Jesus before our hearts were changed. None of us wanted to be chosen. Listen to what Isaiah says about him, Isaiah 53. For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. He, meaning Jesus, has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, no appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Why would anybody choose him? No, instead, the, the idea of being chosen by God actually offended us. The idea of being chosen by Christ, being wed to Christ, was something that was humiliating as an idea. And this is some of what we need to realize when we do evangelism, when we present Christ to people. We're painting this portrait of who he is and what he's done, and we think, man, he is so lovely. But the other person on the other side, if their heart isn't new, if the spirit doesn't intervene, they're hearing you describe the ugliest person imaginable. Somebody who's not worthy of esteem, who you would hide from before you would marry. Only after the Holy Spirit gives us new hearts do we see him for who he is. Do you think Christ is lovely, beautiful, worthy of adoration and worship? Well, then you've been given a new heart. You've been given new eyes to see. Because that's not how in the natural heart we see him. God the Father chose us before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1 says. God chose to open our eyes and ears to who Jesus is. Then he became beautiful to us. And so the Father makes us children by choosing us, by adopting us, by forgiving us in Christ. Romans 5a, God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So the reason why we, we just can't boast in our salvation, that it was all of God. It was him moving toward us, him having mercy on us, him lavishing grace upon us. We were chosen of God. But not just that, now he says he, that we're holy. God declares us holy before him. Anybody here have a problem with that? Just that idea sounds like, wait, you call me holy? It's stunning that every sinful thing that we've ever done or will do, every selfish attitude we've ever carried or will carry, every lustful affection, every thought of heart, whether past, present, future, every good we've failed to do, every evil we have done, every inclination to false worship, every glance at pornography, every coveting of other people's possessions, every moment of anxiety and unbelief and worry and fretfulness, every complaining, grumbling spirit we've taken, Every burst of anger at our children, at our neighbors, at our spouse, every ounce of selfishness, of selfish rage, every sort of bit of bitterness and disobedience and fill in the blank, it's all been nailed to the cross of Christ. That's what Paul is saying even in Colossians 2. It's been paid for by his blood, washed away forever. And now even the perfect righteousness of Christ has been counted to you, credited to you imputed to you all the good he's ever done, all the perfect obedience he's ever performed, all the pleasure he's brought to the Father, all that credited, imputed to you. So that now, and even being filled with what? What are we now filled with? The Holy Spirit. That's one reason why we're holy, is we're set apart and filled with the Holy Spirit. And so that the Father can actually look on you and say, chosen of God, holy. But then thirdly, beloved. Not simply allowed into the kingdom of God and then told to sort of sit in the corner, which is sometimes I think how we relate to God now. We're just so thankful we're in, but there's no way God's happy about this. Right? We walk in the room, God sees us and goes, oh no. Not John. Okay, just sit over there. I know I've forgiven you, I know you're my kid, but I'd rather not look at you. Just kind of go over there, out of, out of my periphery. Sometimes we'll relate to God, right? Like that's his attitude. It's hard to envision, to appreciate, to believe that no, he calls us beloved. He smiles. He delights in us. He enjoys us. He loves for us to come near. His normative expression toward us is gladness and joy. That's his normative expression. Even when he disciplines us, even when he's grieved by our sin, it's because he loves us. 
In other words, he's never apathetic toward us. We are his children. He enjoys speaking to us. He enjoys listening to us. Have you ever thought about that? He, he actually tells you to pray without ceasing. That he's happy to hear your voice in prayer, in worship, in pleading without end. That's astounding. Think about how much time we spend in life just trying to get somewhere where it's quiet. It's silent. Nobody talking to us. Yet God delights in millions of his children talking, and apparently all at the same time. Which I go, okay, if two people are talking to me at once, like I short circuit. Like I can't handle that. God, it's just, okay, more children, more conversation, more words. Chosen of God, holy, and beloved. We have to remember that. As we get ready to relate to one another, we have to remember that, especially as we get ready to relate in marriage, that this is who you are, but even more, this is also who your spouse is. When you look at your spouse, you say, okay, they're chosen of God, they're holy to God, they're beloved of God, and that should affect how we relate. It's like if some man asks to take your daughter out on a date, and she comes to your he comes to your door, and let's just say she's 30 now, so you're okay with it. Anyway, he comes to your door to pick her up, and you look at him and say, all right, you're taking her out on a date. What are you going to say to him? Take care of her. Don't go anywhere stupid. Don't do anything stupid. Be back by 9 p.m. Or, okay, let's stretch it. Be back by midnight. And so sure enough, you, you wait, and you're up, and then midnight rolls around, no sign, 12.30, no sign, 1 a.m., no sign. Finally, 2 a.m., he pulls up. You go to the front door, open it, and he gets out, walks around the door, opens the passenger side, and drags her out by her hair. She's unconscious and bleeding because he beat her up. And he drags her to your threshold of your door by her hair and then dumps her there. And goes, here you go, and starts to walk off. What are you going to do if you're the father? What are you going to do if you're the parents in that moment? You're probably not going to go, oh, cool, this is great. And not many of us think about that, the idea that, okay, we're, we're given a spouse, we're united together, we're one, and then we're to care for one another in such a way that when we face God and we present our mate even before them and ourselves before him, that hopefully, by God's grace, they're in decent condition. And the idea in Ephesians 5 even is that we will in some way have to answer for what we've done. That this is God's child. We as God's child relating to God's child. And so how we see them, how we think about them, how we talk to them, how we relate to them matters to him. And that's why Ephesians 5, Paul's going to give the example of, remember how Jesus treats his bride. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself from her. Washing her with the word that he may present her to the Father without blemish, without spot or wrinkle. And Paul's like, husbands, remember that. That's how Jesus is thinking about relating to his bride. That's how you need to think about it. Okay, wives, think about that as you honor and respect your husbands. That there's, we're going to sort of stand before him and in a way present, okay, here's our spouse. And to remember what marriage is about. It's a visible picture of the invisible reality of Christ in the church. Even if you flip over very briefly to Ephesians 5. We're going to say in verse 18, we talked about this in recent weeks, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. There's the key imperative for everything he's about to say next. Be filled with the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit. Be under the control of the Spirit. And that's going to produce addressing and singing, and making melody, and verse 20, giving thanks, and then verse 21, submitting to one another. And then what does it say? Out of reverence for Christ, wives to your own husbands, submitting to them. Out of reverence for Christ. And what does it say next? As to the Lord. So what he's going to go on to say is, okay, this marriage gift that God has given us, is this visible picture of the invisible reality of Christ in the church. And saying, okay, wives, you are the Christ-reflecting figure in this little drama. You are the church, I'm sorry, reflecting figure. You're the church-reflecting figure in this story. 
And so you're to relate to your husband as if he's Jesus, knowing full well he isn't. Notice how it doesn't say here to honor him, submit to him, respect him because he deserves it. Nor does it say because he needs it. I would argue that men actually don't need it. But rather Christ deserves it out of reverence for him. In the same husbands, verse 25, love your wives. And what does it say? Not because she deserves it. Not according to her behavior. Not if you feel like it. But as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In other words, in marriage, husbands and wives are not meant to take their cues from each other, but from Jesus. Husbands are to love because Christ has loved you. Wives are to honor out of reverence for him. And so much of our trouble in marriage happens when we just get stuck in that horizontal back and forth. Like a two-cycle engine with these two spark plugs just firing off each other. And God interrupts that in the gospel by saying, no, no, take your cues from, from me. Chosen of God, holy and beloved, love as I've loved you, care as I've cared for you. Realize that marriage is not just about getting needs met, getting them to do what I want them to do, making it sort of work out the way I want it to work out. No, it's about telling the story of Christ in the church. And I've even argued that when your spouse is most upsetting to you, when he or she is most not doing it the way you want them to do it, is when you're actually best positioned to show the world what Jesus is really like. To actually show them, okay, how does Jesus relate to somebody who doesn't do what they want? How does Jesus relate to somebody who doesn't love them well? How does Jesus relate to somebody who's selfish? Which pretty much sums up his whole marriage, right? It's Jesus relating to a church that is selfish, to a church that is not thinking about him first. And what he shows is, okay, this is what love looks like. This is what grace looks like. This is what sacrifice looks like. This is what joyful self-sacrifice looks like. So the motivation is clear as to the Lord, out of reverence for Christ, just as Christ loved the church. Husbands are the Christ-reflecting figure. Wives are the church-reflecting figure. Together we tell the story of Christ and the church. And so marriage is to be enjoyed. Marriage is to be encouraging. It's to be lasting. It's to be sanctifying, to be humbling, to be pleasant, to be instructive, yet always in service to telling that story of Christ and the church. It's the anchor for understanding what marriage is really about. And so wives are not told to respect their husbands because their husbands need it, as 90% of all Christian books on marriage will try to tell you. 99.5% of the Christian books on marriage out there, you just got to throw them away. Because they make marriage out to be something that God created to meet human needs rather than to express divine glory, rather than tell the story of Christ in the church. And much frustration and misery even in marriages, even among Christians, is in misunderstanding that. That God gave me a spouse to meet my needs, fill in the blank, whatever those are. Now, that could be true if what we mean is the deep need of becoming more like Jesus or learning to love the way Christ loves or the need to reflect Christ in life. Like it all, Some of it depends on how we define needs. But there'll be a lot of books out there that even Christian books that will be thrust at you that, that will make marriage about mankind, that God gave it primarily to meet human need rather than primarily to tell the story of Christ in the church. And it's meant to be deeply satisfying to people. It's meant to be something that we enjoy, but in the same way that Jesus enjoys his marriage. So chosen of God, holy and beloved, remember who you are. Remember who your spouse is. Remember what marriage is about. And then, point C, put on a new heart. We have new hearts in Christ, and yet we need to consciously put them on each day. In the same way that you have a whole wardrobe of clothing, right? But you do actually have to consciously put it on. Beginning with putting on hearts of compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And interestingly, a lot of times we really do like these kinds of lists. We may even like get out our journal and like write one, two, three, four, five. Here's our 
steps for today. We don't necessarily obey them, but we like them because it kind of gives us something sort of tangible and concrete we feel like we can grab a hold of. And so we have to stop and think for a minute, okay, this is not something I can pull off on my own. And so much of it depends on what he just said, chosen of God, holy and beloved. Because those three things are the basis for everything that Paul's about to say. And I think it's also worth pointing out that this list he's about to give us run very closely to the list that's in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So what he's about to say is, okay, therefore put on the Spirit. Therefore put on a heart that is controlled by the Spirit and hear the fruit of it. Put on a heart of compassion and the strength which his spirit supplies because of the great compassion with which the Father has shown you. I mean, just think about how God found you. And each day, how he tends to find you the weakness that you're in, the frailty that you're in, the tendency you have to mess stuff up. And the Father has compassion on us. Jesus has compassion. And the same now when we get into marriage, we shouldn't expect to be sort of waking up each day next to somebody who's strong, Somebody who's perfect, somebody who's not going to stumble, somebody who's not going to trip over things, somebody who's not going to mess things up. No, otherwise you wouldn't have to say, put on compassion. No, you are somebody who's weak and frail and going to stumble, someone who's in need of compassion, someone who God has given compassion to. And so now in marriage, you get an opportunity to exercise that very same kind of compassion. Put on a heart of kindness, of generosity, just thinking about the never-ending loving kindnesses that the Father has heaped upon you. You're poor, not rich, yet he makes you rich. You come to him wanting, in need, and yet he gives. He lavishes kindnesses on you. His loving kindnesses never fail. His mercies, they really are new every morning. And now he's, Paul's saying, okay, now put that on. That kindness that God has shown you, now get ready to show to your spouse. Put on a heart of humility. You think about the humility of our Savior, Jesus Christ, Philippians 2, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And how many of us feel we deserve better than that? We deserve more than that. And how many of us, we don't realize that we walk into marriage with very much that attitude that, yeah, I know Jesus did this. He condescended. He became a bondservant. But that doesn't mean I want to. And he's saying here, no, put on that kind of attitude of humility, of right-sizedness before God of not thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought, of being a servant, of being a bond slave, of being willing to suffer, being willing to endure hardship. And at no point do we see Jesus grumbling and complaining about it. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. I think we would have been struck if we were hanging out with Jesus every day by just how happy he was, how joyful he was, how content he was. And so he tells us, yeah, put on that very kind of heart of humility in all your relationships, but especially in marriage, the place where you're going to most often have to put on humility, most often be given the opportunity to be humble. Just think about how many of the fights and conflicts that you've had in your marriage really do come down to pride. And how many times have we found that resolution and reconciliation of conflict in marriage is resolved through just being humble? being willing to confess selfishness, being willing to confess pride, being willing to humble ourselves and ask for forgiveness, being willing to humble ourselves and forgive our spouse. That we can almost measure the length of conflict sometimes by how long it takes us to move from pride to humility. How long it takes us to take on this kind of heart. Put on a heart of meekness, which means gentleness. Just thinking about how careful how gently the Savior has been with you. Isaiah 42, 2 through 3, referring to Jesus, he will not cry out or raise his voice. 
nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He's gentle. Though a lion, he's also a lamb. Though a lion, he knows how to relate to lambs. He knows how to be gentle, how to be meek. You realize, okay, every day we have to pray for this. Lord, help me put on this heart of compassion, of kindness, of humility, of meekness. And what helps is to, to look at Christ, to see how he's been all those things toward you, how he continues to be all those things toward you. And then put on a heart of patience, which also means long-suffering, because the Father has been infinitely patient with us. And realizing that, that marriage is hard, but not because there's something wrong with marriage. Marriage is hard because there's something wrong with us. It's interesting how we'll talk about marriage sometimes in disparaging terms. And the Lord's like, hey, marriage ain't the issue, people. <laughs> marriage is a gift. Marriage is great. Marriage is this union that I've created. But the issue is there's people in it. The issue is me. Marriage isn't what's broken. It's that I don't like to love the way Jesus loves. I don't like to be patient the way Christ is patient. I don't like to be forbearing. I don't like to yield and give and be kind, and especially when offended or upset or I don't get my way. I don't like to have to show compassion. Sometimes I don't like to have to receive it. It's just too humbling. Or to admit that I need it. And so marriage isn't the issue. Marriage is just the place where it all gets exposed. All the issues get exposed. The need gets exposed. And where Christ is glorified and where we're sanctified. Romans 2, 4, do you, do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? In other words, we're not to think lightly of his patience. We're to think deeply, heavily, thankfully of his patience. And so much that we're asking God, make me patient as you're patient. And so just as you awake every morning, put off the dirt taking, by taking a shower, then putting on clean clothes, so every day of married life, you've got to put off the old self and put on compassion, put on kindness, put on humility, put on meekness, put on patience. And what I want us to see here is these are postures of heart, not simply behaviors. That's why we're talking about this in a Matters of the Heart series. That these are, begin with postures of heart, not just outward behavior. And so much of what God calls for, and as we relate to each other, so much of what he's thinking the gospel should be doing in us is heart change, heart transformation. Not just, I'm going to fix up the external behavior. Because you've even probably found it, right? When you just try to fix the outside and fix up the behavior, you may get four hours out of that. Maybe eight. Maybe a day. Maybe two days. But you won't last a lifetime. And you won't be joyful in it. If the heart isn't changing, we'll be grumbling and complaining in it. That's why when the Israelites come back from exile... And they come to God, and Zechariah is recording the moment where they come to God and say, hey, do you want us to keep fasting and doing all this stuff that we did while we were in exile? Do you want us to keep doing that now? And God's immediate response, it's a question to him. He says, was it really for me that you were fasting these 70 years? Or was it just for you? <laughs> it's a really humbling question. They're like, do you want us to keep fasting? And God's like, you really weren't fasting. You were externally but I didn't have your hearts in it. It wasn't for me. It was just so you could check off the box and feel great about yourself. And the Bible's full of those kinds of statements where he just looks right at the heart and goes, who's this really for? What do you really... And where we should see more than anything, okay, Lord, I need you more than I thought because I need you to change my heart because, okay, I may be able to go through some of the outward motions, but eventually it's just all going to collapse. And even as I go through those outward motions, I'm probably not going to be happy in it. I'm not going to be joyful in it. So, Lord, I need you to put on in me this heart of compassion, this heart of kindness, heart of humility, heart of meekness, this heart of patience. And what God will do is just create a world for you and relationships for you and an environment for you where all that gets exposed all the time. 
we tend to think of, okay, my spouse really caused me to get angry. My kids caused me to get angry. My neighbor caused me to get angry. When God's like, no, no, they just exposed it. That's just the heat that put under the pot that caused stuff to start to boil. And when it boiled over, here's what came out. That's why when you heat up Jesus, compassion came out. When you heat up Jesus, humility came out. Patience came out. When I get heat up, what, what comes out? And so the Lord is a master in arranging circumstances and relationships and people and events in his love for me to sort of expose what's really inside so that when it comes out, I can realize, okay, Lord, you need to teach me more compassion. I need you to teach me more patience. So these are postures of heart, not simply behaviors. They're the overflow of the gospel controlling our souls, not a marital technique. And we're all looking for that, right? The, the seven steps to a happy marriage. The five steps to. And every year there's a whole list of new books that are going to give you, here's the key. And yet God is going to tell us the key is a new heart. A heart being controlled by the gospel. And it's going to go on now to explain how this posture then will express itself in our relationships. In our marriage. Verse 13, bear with one another and forgive each other. So, this is what Ball believes that manners and attitudes that we're putting on now then expresses itself in life. That compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience means bearing with one another and forgiving one another. I love it. In, in his book, This Momentary Marriage, John Piper is going to sort of explain those words a little bit and say that these things are so important in marriage, bearing with one another, forgiving each other, because the two things that you'll most have to deal with in marriage is what he calls strangeness and sinfulness. You've married somebody that's going to be strange to you, and you've married somebody who's a sinner, and you're going to be strange to them. And you're going to be a sinner to them. So at times, your spouse will seem weird to you, right? Well, just be ways that they think about things. That you're like, that's weird. Ways that they see things and explain things, and you just go, that's, that's strange. And then they're going to listen to you talk and explain things and share your perspective, and they're going to have the same conclusion. Wow, you're weird. That's strange. Because we're meant to complement one another, not copy each other. Your husband and wife, not robot one and robot two. And sometimes so much of the friction we'll have in marriage is trying to turn our spouse into our image rather than realize how God is reforming them into his image and that we're there to help them transform more into Christ's image, not into our image. So often there'll be things that we see in marriage that just are strange or weird to us and we think we got to get rid of that rather than celebrate that, rather than appreciate that. You're made in the image of God, both made in the image of God, but as man and woman, equally valuable yet distinct from each other. Your spouse is going to see things from a different angle, value things in different proportions, have different sets of priorities. Their opinions will be different than yours, sense of humor different than yours, ways of relating that may be foreign to you, and that really is part of the gift, is learning how to love other, how to relate to other, how to enjoy other. Just how alien do we as sinners seem to God? Like here's Jesus going to take on human flesh and it's this massive expression of condescension, of this massive expression of humility just to become a man and to walk among us. And as he's walking among us, everything compared to him is wrong. Everything compared to him is out of place. And yet he bore with the disciples. We've been seeing that, right, in the book of Mark, as Pastor Brad's been preaching through it, just how much he bore with the disciples, their strangeness. But beyond human strangeness, there's also human sinfulness. Your spouse is a sinner, and so are you. At times, your spouse will be rude and unkind to you, and you will be rude and unkind to them. And I find it's only in our pride that we're shocked by this, Right? Isn't it interesting that how shocked we get that other people are sinners? Like our spouse says something rude and we're like, oh, how? How did this happen? Or they confront us with something that we've done. Hey, you were rude. And we're just, we look at them in unbelief. Like, wait, you're saying I wronged you? That can't be. I mean, I don't, 
I don't do that. Like that's what pride does. Pride can't accept, no, there's going to be all kinds of sin, all kinds of mess, all kinds of things that God's going to be working on in the middle of it. It's part of the gift. Scripture is clear, until we see Jesus face to face, we will carry sin in our souls. And so the world is full of human sinfulness, and we are part of it. We're called to bear with one another's strangeness and forgive each other's sinfulness. So that's the word he gives, bear with strangeness, but then forgive sinfulness. Look at what he says, if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, and here it is, as the Lord has forgiven you. So there, there's the cue again. If you really want to forgive, then look at how Christ has forgiven you. And so marriage is full of a posture of heart that expresses itself in bearing with one another. A posture of heart that expresses itself in forgiving one another. A posture of heart that expresses itself in repenting of sin, acknowledging sin, seeking forgiveness from other, reconciling. That's what actually makes a Christian marriage distinct from all the other marriages in the world. It's not the absence of sin. It's the presence of forgiveness. It's not the absence of strangeness. It's the presence of bearing with one another. That's actually what makes, should make, Christ-centered marriage distinct from the marriage that's happening in the world. It's not that we perform better than the world. It's not that we look so much better than the world. It's not that we've achieved some kind of greatness as husband and wife. No, it's that we actually know what sin is and grieve it and seek forgiveness for it and forgive for it and reconcile. That's where the gospel really sets apart the kind of marriage we're talking about, the kind of work it's doing in our hearts. Any questions before we keep going? Comments, thoughts? Yeah, good question. So how do you think through the difference between strangeness and sinfulness? Yeah, so sinfulness is going to be anything that God says, that's sin. And so that's some of, whereas strangeness is just, that's different. And so that's some of what we have to look at, and when we think about, okay, I'm upset at my mate, did they wrong me? Or do they just not do it my way? Okay, I'm upset at my mate, is because they said something untrue or wicked, or am I upset because they said something actually quite true, <laughs> and I don't like it, <clears throat> or that they're just sharing an opinion that's different, an idea that's different, a perspective that's different. And so in many ways, that's where the scripture is our help, that, okay, God will decide what wrongdoing is. And so we have to know the word of God well enough, as we're looking a little bit, it has to dwell in us richly in, in a way that we actually know the difference between strangeness and sinfulness. And how much, so much of our trouble in marriage is we, start, we treat strangeness as if it's sinfulness. The difference is as if it's evil. When really it's different. And that's why we have to put on humility to appreciate different. Appreciate other. Um, and to realize they're having to do the same thing. That sometimes, because we just don't, this is how, again, this is just how selfishness works is it's blind to itself. And so I actually think I do everything the way I do it because it's the right way, right? That's why I do it like this. That's why everybody else ought to do it like this. Because I, I have the right way to do it. This is the right way to clean the house. This is how it ought to look. This is the right way to handle the budget. This is the right way to deal with this kind of issue. This is the right way to use time. This is the right way to fill in the blank. And we just don't realize how much of that we bring into marriage that, yeah, that just our world is, makes sense to us. And then God brings another human being into it and they start rearranging stuff. And they start saying, well, hey, let's do it this way. Let's do it this way. And our first response is, well, that can't be right. Because if this was right, I would have done it this way before. But I didn't do it this way before because it's wrong. And we start relating as if, okay, this is wrong. And don't realize, okay, that's where humility comes in. That's where, okay, lower yourself going, wait a minute, is this what God says, thou shalt not? Or is this what I say, thou shalt not? And so there's, you know, 
marriage is a clash of kingdoms. You know, there's my kingdom that's set up a certain way, there's spouse kingdom that's set up, and there's God's kingdom. And we come into marriage thinking that God's kingdom and my kingdom are basically the same thing. Same values, same priorities, same ways of doing things. And then this other kingdom comes in, we realize, okay, there's the alien kingdom. And we've got to subject that kingdom to God's kingdom, which we don't realize how much we've labeled God's kingdom. It's just my kingdom by that name. And then, of course, God's there going, no, we're just going to wreck it all. We're going to bring all those kingdoms down, and just my kingdom will prevail, where Jesus reigns, where Jesus is supreme, where Jesus, and he does it very patiently, very graciously, very kindly, but it's humbling. And it requires willingness to change, change of heart. In verse 14, put on love, which is really just a summary statement of everything he said so far. Love being joyful self-sacrifice compelled by the Holy Spirit for the eternal good of others and the glory of God. That's what love is. Joyful self-sacrifice compelled by the Holy Spirit for the eternal good of others and the glory of God. That's one way to, again, determine strangeness and sinfulness. We can ask ourselves, okay, did Jesus have to die for that? And if the answer is no, then it ain't sin. Don't treat it like sin. Did Jesus have to die for your spouse's way of not cleaning the kitchen? Did Jesus have to die for your spouse's way of parking the car? Did Jesus have to die for how the toilet paper goes? Or fill in the blank? But yet we'll talk as if Jesus had to die for that. That's how serious this is. And so some of what God's doing is sort of rearranging and putting rightly into, okay, what does it mean to actually love for you to joyfully self-sacrifice in a way that's compelled by the Spirit and that's actually for the eternal good of your mate and for the glory of God. You know, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4, love is patient, love is kind and not jealous, love does not brag, is not arrogant, meaning it's humble does not act unbecomingly, does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, meaning it's forgiving, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. See how much of that is actually from the list that Paul's already given us in Colossians 3? So when he says put on love, he just, that's the summary statement for everything he said. That all of this leads to love. Verse 14, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Love holds marriages together. Love feeds marriages. God has given love as a means to create unions and preserve unions and protect unions. And so marriages are not held together by total agreement or compatibility. That's why so many of the matching programs and online stuff don't work. Is they try to pair based on agreement based on similarities, based on what lines up. But what none of them are able to measure is, are you actually a loving person? Do you actually love the way Jesus loves? Because love is what actually harmonizes. Not agreement, not compatibility, but joyful self-sacrifice. Love reconciles people, keeps reconciling people. Love covers transgressions. Love perseveres under pressure. And love refuses to resent the cost of its own existence. Because sometimes, yeah, we'll love, but we'll resent it, which isn't love, really. And let the peace of Christ rule your hearts, verse 15. That the life, death, and resurrection of Christ secured our souls peace with God. The gospel is a message of peace. It offers peace It offers peace within our own souls. It also offers peace with others, but it mostly, firstly, offers peace with God. So we're not supposed to let the fear of people rule our hearts, but the peace of Christ rule our hearts. We're not to let proud insecurities rule our hearts. Anxieties take over our view of God, our view of marriage, our view of spouse, our view of ourselves. But the peace of Christ John 14, 27, Jesus says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it 
be fearful? How much conflict do we have in marriage that just comes down to fear, anxiety, panicking over something? Spouse does X, Y, Z, or spouse fails to do X, Y, Z, and we go, oh no, this is the end of the world. Like, we're, we're not going to be able to survive this. Or we've got to nuke this thing. Because if this seed is able to grow, like, it'll destroy everything. Like, how much fear of people, anxiety about future, distrust of God feeds and shapes how we talk to our spouses, how we deal with issues. So let the peace of Christ, look at that word, rule. I mean, have total control. Reign completely. Be the governing principle in our hearts and lives. And again, hopefully when all of us hear that, we all go, okay, Lord, help me. Like, then that means, Spirit, you have to rule my heart. Because every inclination in me is, moves toward anxiety, toward worry, toward fretfulness, toward I want to be in control. He says, no, no, let the peace of Christ rule you. Which protects unity, verse 15, produces thanksgiving. That when we really understand the peace that we've been given in Christ, the peace that we have with God, it should make us constantly thankful, constantly grateful, deeply content. Because we realize, you know what, you could lose everything else. But if, if you have peace with God, like, okay, we're good. Because that transcends everything. That's what will get you to the other side. Because you're going to lose all this anyway. This world's passing away. Everything that's precious to us in this world will be lost. It's why life is full of loss and grief and mourning. And yet if you have the peace of Christ, then you have something to be constantly thankful for. And let the word of Christ dwell in you Richly. Again, it's one thing just to sort of read the Bible and check it off the box. To do an inductive study year after year after year and accumulate studies on the shelf and just see the information. It's something different to let the word dwell in you richly. Bear fruit in you richly. Govern the way we think. Govern the way we feel. We need to be eating on the word of God every day and letting the word of God sort of chew on us. It's one thing, you've probably heard this saying, it's one thing to go through the word of God, it's another thing for it to go through you and just change us, transform us. And this won't be something that we just wrap up by Tuesday. It's every day, every hour, for the rest of our days, by God's grace. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the word of Christ richly dwell in you. Which then transforms the way we deal with sin in our life and sin in the lives of our spouses. It shapes the way we think, feel, speak. It gives far more than just a list of guidelines and directives. It is food. It's light for our path. It's the revelation of who God is. It's hope. The word of Christ clarifies how we see the world, straightens out the way we see the world. It's the very voice of God in our lives, the very voice of God in our hearts. It brings healing. It brings conviction. It brings change. It brings wisdom. It gives rest and reproof and instruction. It's a source of power. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. So when Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, He means let it have its way with you. Let it govern you, enable you, strengthen you, guide you, direct you, feed you, nourish you. We're to submit our interests to the word of God, our desires to the word of God, our passions to the word of God. Just like Jesus prayed in the garden, Father, not my will, your will be done. And what he didn't want was to drink the cup of God's wrath. What he didn't want is to know the worst conceivable agony a human can know. So you think, that's a pretty good prayer to say, Lord, if there's a way for this cup to pass, let it pass. But he says, but not my will be done. Your will be done. 
which adds to unity and thanksgiving, kind of wise teaching and admonishment with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and even more thanksgiving. See that in those next verses. You know, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, now teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. It's interesting how he puts the order of, okay, when that's happening, now you're ready to talk. When the word of Christ is dwelling in you richly, now you'll have something that God thinks is important to say to your spouse. Yet how many of us just jump right in? Just whatever we're feeling in the moment, whatever we're thinking in the moment, whatever's going on in the moment, whatever circumstance we're living under, we just start blurting stuff out. We just start talking. And that's why it's no wonder that it's usually not in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs or with thankfulness. It's usually with frustration, with anger, with malice, with you fill in the blank. That's why the order of that is so important. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now you're ready to admonish. Let it dwell in you richly. Now you're ready to speak with wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Yeah, so imagine getting the phone call that, you know, a hospital calls you and says, yeah, I'm sorry to say that your spouse was out running and collapsed and has had a heart attack. And they've rushed him here to the hospital and we've got them in the operating room and we need to get you, and you need to get here as soon as possible. And you've just been out on a 5K run of your own. It was a mud run. So you're covered in mud. You're dripping with all that. So you jump in the car, you rush to the hospital, you go into the, into the waiting area that you are. And the surgeon actually meets you there, which is surprising. You're like, oh, wow, the surgeon came out. And they meet there and they're like, oh, we're, I'm so glad you're here that we can start the operation now. And you go, okay, that's strange. And the surgeon goes, okay, come back with me. And you walk back with the surgeon to the operating area. And he takes you to the preparation room right outside the operating room. And you look through the window, and there's your spouse laying on a table. Chest laid bare, oxygen mask over the face, the team of surgeons and nurses and staff all around them, the anesthesiologist with everything beeping and all the equipment. And the, and the surgeon goes, all right, we got to get you in there so that you can help with the surgery. And if that's what that surgeon says, what do you think you're going to say in response? Uh, no, 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 I'm not. And he goes, no, no, you are. You got to come in. You, we can't do anything without you coming into the room. So you have to participate. And you look down at your body and it's covered in mud. It's dripping with sweat and blood. And what are you then going to say next? Okay, well, then I got to get cleaned up. Like, you got to clean me up. He says, well, no problem, we got stuff for that. So they take you off to the side and they wash you, they clean you, then they put on you new clothing, like surgical garments. Get all the headgear, get dressed, and you walk in, and then the smell, the operating room hits you, the sounds, the lights. You walk up to the table, and there's your spouse unconscious on the table, waiting for surgery. And you come up next to the surgeon, and he looks at you, and he hands you a scalpel. Now what are you going to say? Like, um, what do you expect me to do with that? He goes, well, just start cutting. And then what are you going to say? Like, I'm sorry, I'm not qualified for this kind of work. <laughs> and yet, we'll sort of cut into our spouse with words without a second thought. Right? We'll jump into that, the even more important kind of heart surgery, spiritual heart surgery like God's kind of work, without even being invited, without being cleaned up, without being prepared. And so there's a danger that we all sort of have in those moments. If you can imagine marriage as sort of that surgery room that God brings us into, and he is the chief surgeon. And we've been called to participate in the sanctification of our spouse, in the heart surgery that he's doing. And they've been called to do the same surgery and participate in it on us. And are we struck by the gravity of the situation? Are we struck by the gravity of what we're being invited into as ambassadors for Christ, 
as representative of Jesus in the life of our mate? Are we struck by the gravity of every movement with the scalpel? And the temptation some of us will have is we just don't want to participate. We say, you know what? I'm just going to avoid conflict. I'm just going to avoid talking. I'm just going to avoid getting into the messy details. That's one way that we're neglectful in marriage is God says, all right, we're going into the OR and we're like, I'm out of here. Just tell me when you're done. We don't want a part of it. The other mistake we make is he says, hey, come on in. You're going to participate. We're like, oh, awesome. About time. And we grab our chainsaw and it's like, and then we're going, forget scalpel. I've got a chainsaw for this work. And we don't realize that the work we're doing is actually more work Jesus has to do repairing it. That the actual words we're speaking are so anti-gospel, so unlike the words Jesus would use, that he actually has to come in behind us and do repair work. But what he's really after is a heart posture put on there for compassion, kindness, meekness, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other. Above all these things, put on love. Let the peace of Christ rule you. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Okay, now you're dressed and ready. Now you're at the table. And he hands you that scalpel. And you're looking at him and go, okay, you got to tell me what to do here. He's like, well, yeah, just make an incision there on the chest. And you reach that scalpel out over their chest. And what's your hand going to be doing at this point? Just, uh, and you're like, can you steady my hand, please? And at every step, we're going to ask. He's like, no problem. He puts his hand over yours and now starts to cut. And you start realizing, okay, this is serious work. This is sobering work. Lord, you have to guide every step I make, every move I make, because this can kill them if you're not in charge of what goes on in here. And sometimes we're the ones being called upon to assist Jesus in that kind of surgical work. At other times, we're the ones on the table So the other question we have to ask ourselves is, what kind of patient am I in marriage? When my spouse comes up with Jesus to the table and I'm laying there, do I look like a medieval knight? There's like so much armor on. It's just like you've got to get a blowtorch to get through how guarded I am, how defensive I am, how unwilling to open up, be transparent, be honest I am. Or is it like doing surgery on a brook trout? You know, it's just jumping and flapping all over the place like so slippery and slow unable to stay still and like deal with things and so the metaphor works both sides what what kind of assistant are we to the surgeon in the work but then what kind of patient are we when we're the ones now under the knife we're the ones on the table we're the ones that Jesus is trying to work on through marriage through life what kind of posture of heart do we have then Knowing that the reason for all this is the glory of God. This is where Paul's going to close this statement. And whatever you do, not most things you do, whatever you do, whatever you say, whatever you feel, however you relate in your marriage, in your life, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus meaning everything with him in mind, everything knowing his name is in it, knowing that when you get out of that surgery room, he was the chief surgeon, his reputation, his name's at stake for how that surgery went. So if your spouse walked out of the hospital looking like Frankenstein because of the work you did, Jesus' name's attached to that. That's some of what he's saying. In word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. There's that word again, thanks. Thanksgiving, thanksgiving, thanksgiving. And whatever we do, however we speak or relate, all of it for the glory of God, in the name of God. Any final questions or thoughts or reflections before we close? pray for us. Well, Father, we do give you praise and thanks for loving us with a perfect love, for redeeming us with the perfect blood of your son, for wedding us to him. 
He is our husband and forever. For giving us the gift of marriage as this picture of Christ and the church. And we praise you for making us chosen of God, holy and beloved. May that reality give us much joy, much gratitude, much thanksgiving. And may you help us every single day to put on hearts of compassion, kindness and meekness and gentleness and patience. Help us to be a forgiving people. Help us to be a repentant people. Help us to put on love above all things, to let peace Your peace rule us to let your word dwell in us richly so that everything we say, everything we do, everything we feel, everything we relate, especially in marriage, is in the name of Jesus and for your glory. And so we pray that you would give us patience in this work, that you would give us gratitude in this work. We pray that none of us would be overwhelmed or overburdened by the sense of we have to do this on our own but that we would look to you, Father, in giving your Son, in giving your Spirit, and enabling us and changing us, that we would be thankful for all the ways that you use marriage to sanctify us in the truth, and yet also use marriage to show us what your love is like and to delight us in this time on earth. And so we pray that you would help us to see it in a whole new way. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.